You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Before we get started, we have some brief housekeeping notes to talk about. We will, in fact, have a new SpyCast both next week on Christmas Day, as well as a week after on New Year's Day. So while you're building a snowman or eating Chinese food or a week later nursing that hangover, you can be listening to a new SpyCast. New Year's Day is also the final day the current iteration of the International Spy Museum will be open. In case you haven't heard, we are moving the museum to a different location here in D.C., a new and improved museum with new and exciting content. But we'll be closed for a little while until our reopening in the spring. However, SpyCast won't be going on vacation, as sad as that makes our AV guys. We promise to keep giving you the content you've come to expect from us, in the first month and a half of 2019 alone, we'll have SpyCast with the director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, the U.S. Marshal who led the hunt to find Joseph Mengele, terrorism expert Peter Bergen, a podcast discussing British covert action, and much more. So though the doors of the physical museum are closed, the International Spy Museum will continue to focus on our mission of education. We're joined today by James Stasgall, who began his military training as an airborne infantryman, serving with the 82nd Airborne. He then qualified for Special Forces and successfully completed the Artist Q course to win his Green Beret. He served the U.S. Army Special Forces in many, quote, interesting places worldwide, including Berlin, the Balkans, the Middle East, and Africa, before retiring as a Chief Warrant Officer four after 23 years. He then worked as a security consultant for a U.S.-based non-governmental organization in Central Africa during the Rwandan insurgency and Second Congo War. James was later recruited by the Central Intelligence Agency and served as Senior Intelligence Operations Officer in Africa, Europe, and the Far East before retiring again. He is the author of an earlier book, Special Forces Berlin, Clandestine Cold War Operations of the U.S. Army's Elite, 1956 to 1990, which is somewhat history, somewhat memoir. And his newest book is Masters of Mayhem, Lawrence of Arabia and the British Military Mission to the Hejaz. So welcome back, James. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us again here on SpyCast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I suppose it's an obvious question to ask a former Green Beret white me. He might be interested in T.E. Lawrence. But specifically, what kind of made you want to write this book? There's so much out there on Lawrence of Arabia. Um, what did you think you could bring new to the topic? My interest in Lawrence goes way back uh, to about the time of the um, David Lane film. 
and I was interested at, uh, in Lawrence as a young man, and I've had I had a lot of preconceived notions about Lawrence, the loner, the guy that you see out by himself in the desert, and. Um, one thing led to another. I ended up in the Army. We studied Lawrence in the Special Warfare Center as part of our uh, training. Um, after I got out of the military, I got interested in uh, conflict archaeology, the study of the sociological impacts of war on societies and uh, in the terrain. And I got reintroduced to Lawrence in Jordan, uh, where we were doing an expedition to basically trace Lawrence's history, his book, to determine exactly how accurate or inaccurate it was. And it turns out that he was actually, uh, to paraphrase Huckleberry Finn, um, more often than not, he was very honest about his um, work. Sometimes he embellished his, his life a bit. But about the same time, I began to notice there were a lot of other players there that I hadn't really thought about. <clears throat> and those included um, the Royal Flying Corps, later the Royal Air Force, uh, the Navy, and ground forces. And I began to see not so much Lawrence as an individual anymore, but this as a group effort uh, to assist the Arab Revolt, much more than I had before. Right. I mean, it's clear from the book that this is a combined special operations. Exactly. You know, where you've got air elements, you've got sea elements, you know, where the Royal Navy is involved and, of course, land and then mixing in the kind of the special operations and guerrilla forces, where we would look at it today, to me this is much more recognizable about warfare today than what I had assumed to be the case about Lawrence before. I, I fully agree with you. And you've also got intelligence elements uh, doing a lot of the work behind the scenes. Uh, even up to the beginning of the Arab Revolt, the intelligence folks are, are putting agents into the area to garner information. There's a lot of NSA-like uh, radio interception going on. And in fact, if you're reading uh, Lawrence's papers, they'll refer to Agent X or Agent Y. And conclusive information... And it's actually radio intercepts of either the Turks or the Germans' communications. Uh, so it's it's a multifaceted multifaceted campaign, much of which much of which was lost after World War One until they basically reinvented it right. for World War Two. Well, you see, also, I mean, some of the early kind of nascent forms of aero reconnaissance that helps certainly later on when they're moving north, and they're getting kind of almost geospatial intelligence on the spot about you know where the Turk formations are from overhead reconnaissance. Absolutely. And it actually, some of the maps that the Royal Flying Corps, Royal Air Force later on, uh, made assisted us in finding things in the desert. We would actually use those maps to, to compare to modern plots, and we would go out and find things based on that. They also did some of the first aerial resupplies behind the lines, where they landed a huge Hanley Page bomber behind the Turkish lines and re resupplied um, Lawrence and his uh, his compatriots well behind the lines. And as far as I can determine, it's one of the first uh, such missions like that. Well, let's talk about Lawrence for for those that don't have extensive reading of it, whether it's Southern Pillars of Wisdom or seen the movie or anything else. Um, one thing that he didn't just kind of fall into this and decide it was a good idea. He had extensive experience in the area, doing a lot of what you were doing earlier, kind of archaeological research. And in doing so, it really made him very proficient working with locals and understanding dialects and kind of that relationship was built 
years before the war began. That's probably what I think Lawrence should be known for is his ability to work with the local tribes. Um, he wrote his basic rules for working with uh, the Arabs. And um, he, as you say, he had a lot of empathy for, for the Arabs and their cause against their oppressors, uh, the Ottoman Turkish Empire. And he was one of the only or one of the few um, British officers or even French officers for that matter that could work with these people on a day-to-day -day basis and get things done consistently. A lot of the other British officers did not have the patience or the understanding of how to do that. I mean, that's Special Forces 101, right? Learn the languages, the, the specific local dialects, understand what makes them tick so that you can use them in the future and they're actually happy to be used in the future. Well, that's that's what he was doing. He yeah. built a surrogate army and he knew also that he could not tell them what to do. He had to guide them or give them advice and he knew better than most that, that you had to let the locals do the job as best they could and not to the British perfect standard. So he, he was remarkably adept in that area. The Green Berets, U.S. Army, capital S, capital F, special forces, essentially is designed to advise as foreigners or regular forces in other places. Is it safe to say that Lawrence, I mean, irregular warfare has been around for millennia. I mean, you know, look at the, the zealots against the Romans in the biblical times. But is it safe to say that he was one of, if not the first foreign officer to be put in somewhere to advise irregular forces on how to fight a war, kind of the Green Beret model? Well, he, if not the first, he's one of the first. And he's one of the first to actually codify and write down his experiences. Um, Seven Pillars of Wisdom is a wonderful literary work, but his, his uh, rules, his uh, 20, uh, I can never remember the number on this one, um, his 27 articles, um, Define how you had how you had to be able to work with the Arabs to get something done, and that's one of the first um, the first uh, instances I, I have found that uh, that has happened. Well, I mean, Lawrence is always per, kind of portrayed as a special operator, but he really gets his beginnings in the intel world. You know, as an intelligence officer doing some of the mapping and, and earlier stuff, cartography. Right? Yeah. Are, are we looking at kind of the beginnings of this relationship? between special operations and intelligence that, you know, is so prevalent today and certainly was when you were working with special forces back during the Cold War? Well, um, Lawrence certainly fell into it, as you say, in an interesting, if not guided, it was certainly a fortuitous route for him. He was an archaeologist, uh, a pure archaeologist working in, in Syria. Um, and then he goes back and is recruited by one of his friends, a fellow archaeologist, to work for the the um, war effort when World War One starts. Becomes a, a cartographer, ends up in Cairo because of his language skills, is interpreting maps and intelligence, interrogating prisoners, and he realizes he wants to be in with the revolt that has started. Now the revolt, the beginnings of the revolt actually are pre-1914, before the World, World War I starts. And the British were well aware of the possibilities of using the um, Hijaz Arabs against the Turks. But up until that point, they couldn't do anything because there was no war. Right. So 
Lawrence falls into basically this this perfectly set up cauldron of of different people mixing together archaeologists uh, royal engineers who have done a lot of survey work in the Middle East, and uh, uh, senior intelligence officers like uh, Colonel Clayton in um, in Cairo, who is putting this all together, and um, his his arrival on the scene, I think, is just at the perfect moment, and he is able to take take advantage of everything. Let's talk a little bit about that part of the war because we just had the 100th anniversary of the armistice uh, ending the, the First World War and almost all of the focus was on Europe, was on the European war. And in many cases, the war against the Ottomans was, you know, the sideshow. And you know, as has been referenced, you know, the Arab revolt was a sideshow to the sideshow. Um, but you talked about the idea of the war kind of, the revolt that had become before where the British realized that they could potentially use the Arabs against it. But there was a point where the Germans were actually trying to work with the Arabs, you know, to try to foment a jihad against the British. It seemed like both sides in the war were looking towards the Arab population as a potential way to mess with the other side. Well, the Germans and the Turks were both partially successful and mostly unsuccessful, but um, they they fomented an insurgency to the west of Egypt. Um, in what is now Libya, when they get the Senussi rebels to rise up against the British. And basically, the British are up against the Suez Canal, worrying about the Turkish army coming from the east. At the same time now, the the Turkish uh, guerrilla advisors and German guerrilla advisors are working with an insurgency to their rear, to the west. And until the insurgency in the west was quelled, which took them about two and a half years, the British were in a very weak position, a thin line in the sand, so to speak, between the Senussis and the Turks and the Ottoman army on one, on both sides. Um, they also, the Germans also tried to uh, raise a an insurgency to the south of the Hijaz in what is today the Yemen, and they were hoping to use that to uh, divert British resources and also possibly assist. There are still ongoing campaign in East Africa, which was right across the Gulf. So, um, luckily, I think for the British, uh, the the German efforts uh, were ultimately unsuccessful. So. You talked about Lawrence kind of dropping in at just the right time, uh, and that's many cases because the Arab Revolt got off to a decent start, but it started to kind of sputter out after a while. Particularly, we talk about enthusiasm wearing off, where a lot of the people are only in there for looting the Turks. And the realization that Medina, which had been controlled by the Turks, essentially an impenetrable area. It seems the British came in at the right time. I, I, I know it's always tricky, or even Orientalist, kind of use a very kind of wonky academic term, to say the British swooped in and saved the Arabs. But the timing was perfect in this case, because the Arab Revolt, didn't have the momentum really that it needed before Lawrence and British support were able to come in and make a difference. Uh, I'm not sure I would say the timing was perfect, but but the circumstances worked out perfectly because before that happened, there was a lot of indecision on both sides, on the sides of the, the Arabs, of how much support to accept, whether or not they were going to let any 
non-Muslim soldiers onto their territory, and at the same time, the British were trying to decide how much effort they should devote to this, um, whether or not they could put troops forward, because they they fully expected that there would be a revolt within a revolt if Christian troops, right. <laughs> rightly uh, so, uh, landed in the area. So I, I think it was a matter of timing, yes, but it was also, it just happened to work out. <laughs> how, how important... Well, I think there's a misperception, certainly among even even those who have read a lot about this and anyone who's kind of seen the movie, that the the Arab Bureau, the the British kind of high level headquarters put together for this, were a bunch of amateurs that just kind of fell for this idea of Arab independence. And it seems there's a lot of real professionalism here. We talked about professional intelligence officers and combined arms operations, and you know, where the idea of the people on the ground may have known a lot more about what they were doing than the people back in London not giving the support that they needed. I, I lean in the direction of this being a very um, professional organization that was put together in rather a scattershot fashion. Um, as I mentioned, uh, uh, Colonel Clayton, who later becomes Brigadier General Clayton, was in charge of all intelligence in Cairo, both political intelligence and military intelligence. And then you've got <clears throat> um, Wingate, who is the um, Sidar, the head of the Egyptian forces, and he's down in Khartoum. And you have a succession of British generals who are supportive of this revolt, but just don't know how to handle it until one Pacific general comes along by the name of Allenby. But beyond that, you've got these archaeologists and, as I said, royal engineers and a lot of people who knew the area, knew the people, and knew how to work in this area. So in that regard, General Clayton, who put the Arab Bureau together, was very astute in choosing the right people for the job. And nobody else really knew how to handle this this problem and they they put basically together a combined operations headquarters that could work with the people but also they knew how to play the game with london and the uh folks in in the uh indian empire who were, who were basically competing or were at odds with much of what they did well let's talk about india really quickly because i think that it's an interesting concept because Pushing for a Muslim homeland and Arab revolt made people in India very, very nervous. Extremely yeah. nervous. Because when we're talking about India in 1914, 1915, yeah. it's not India, Pakistan. It's all one big area that's full of hundreds of thousands, not millions of Muslims who yeah. would go, oh, they get their own area? Why we get our own area, too? Yeah. Well, that was a big concern for them, but um, as it, 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 it would have been inevitable in any event, I think. Um, the British were already supporting a family by the name of Saud uh, to the east of the Hijaz, and we know what happened there. Um, and the Indian Muslim population had already uh, stood up against the British on numerous occasions. They just didn't have the strength yet. So it, it was a ball that was already rolling downhill, and some people were trying to hold it back, but it was something they could never hold back. Let's talk about Medina, because we've already mentioned the idea of Medina being this impenetrable fortress. And, and the, the, what, the one thing I think that separates Lawrence out from his contemporaries is his contemporaries still wanted to, they saw Medina as a juicy conventional target, as a 
a major city that was important to take that had a lot of Turkish forces in it, and he had to take Medina. Lawrence did the very traditional guerrilla force. said, that's a powerful... Like, why are we hitting them where they're hardest? Why are we hitting the most fortified place? And it's actually going around conventional wisdom to say it's better not to take Medina. Let the Turks stay there and then pick away at the edges. Well, Medina, he, he rightly realized that Medina was an albatross for the Turks. They had 12,000 troops at the end of a long rail line that they had to keep supplied, they had to keep alive. But at the same time... Um, Lawrence realized that if the revolt was going to get anywhere, he had to move north to get to the other Arab tribes that were willing and ready to support the revolt. And the only way to do that was to abandon Medina. There was another uh, facet of that, and the British and French high commands did not want the revolt to move north. Uh, they knew that if the revolt moved north that they would gather steam and would probably be a problem for them in the future, especially the French, because the French wanted to control Syria after the war. But there were a number of British officers that also saw this revolt as a way to weaken the Turks, but they did not want to empower them so that after the war they could have too much power in the neighborhood. Right. The British wanted to be able to control the Gulf. And the Red Sea. Yeah. Well, what they didn't probably realize, and certainly the Turks didn't realize, is that the revolt would eventually go from being kind of a nuisance to the fringes of the Ottoman Empire to actually a, a formidable power at a certain point. And then as they matured, this is kind of where you get to the the Aqaba kind of battle, which is one of the most extraordinary that no one knows about, you know, uh, in history. And I think no one knows about it. Because Lawrence is the only outsider to even write about it and look at it. Yeah, uh, the the revolt. I'm not sure how much I put about of this into the book, but it it follows into the the classic three phases of a revolution or a rebellion, and it's the first phase is just unrest. The second phase is basically rebellion, acts of terrorism, guerrilla warfare kind of tactics, and then the third phase is when they coalesce into their own fighting. And that's what happened with the Arab Revolt in 1918. They coalesced into a magnificent fighting force, at least compared to the Turks. Uh, with only about 5,000 to 8,000 troops, they managed to, to push the Turks out. But Aqaba was really the key to being able to do that. And once they had Aqaba, they had a secure port within the territory with which they could supply their troops and move forward. Well, and Lawrence had to make a pretty hardcore decision at this point to go basically to commit treason against his own country by giving, essentially leaking top secret information about post-war plans to the Arabs that there was really no intention whatsoever of giving them the kind of land that they wanted unless they had territory in their hands that they could negotiate with. Which is why he couldn't tell his superiors about his plan to take Aqaba. Whether or not it was entirely his plan or also Faisal's plan, it really doesn't matter because without the support of Lawrence and the money he was getting from the British to, to put give to the tribes to come together, it wouldn't have happened. But he definitely went against the wishes of his commanders because he knew his commanders, his country, I guess, 
and the French were not being straight with the Arabs. The Arab, they had told the Arabs one thing, and now behind their backs they had changed and were telling a completely different story. Had, had Russia not fallen to the revolt, um, in 1917, the Arabs might not have ever found out about it until until after the war was was over. But once that came out, then they had to go forward. We'll be right back after this. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. We, we talked about earlier about the fact that it was not ever just kind of Lawrence by himself. It was this <clears throat> combined arms idea. And, and But this, this operation actually was him on his own, right? He This is... If you've seen the David Lean movie, this is him in the desert with just everybody, and it's just him. Uh, you know, the, he, that's why we don't know a lot about this because he's the only person outside of the Arabs to observe it, and it's it's pretty audacious. This is a, a you know crossing the desert where you know even even the Arabs who live there were having troubles and dropping dead because you're going through an insanely inhospitable area. This is a kind of a ballsy move by Lawrence. It is, um, and he. This goes again to his ability to work with the locals. He um, trusted his Arab commanders, and uh, the competence of those Arab commanders, which had been forged in in Bedouin warfare for years. They knew the tracks to take. They knew how to move around. They knew which tribes they could trust and which ones they couldn't. Without that 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 knowledge and leadership capability, that attack would have never gone off. But by the same token, again, it was Lawrence that was able to give them the means to to pull it off. And and he goes out as the lone foreigner, a Christian, with his small Arab army, and they do an audacious 600-mile end-around attack and, and take a port, what, what no one thought could be done. Well, it's an interesting concept also, the idea of, you know, this is classic special operations also, because Lawrence before that had to evaluate the leadership of the Arab forces and actually had to find what leaders were actually worth following, because there were a lot of people who had the the right, you know, birthrights, or they're the son of the right person, or they kind of had the right tribal relationships, but they would have been terrible military commanders. And so a lot of what he had to do in the same way that a Green Beret would go into any area in the world today and find the tribal leaders that actually can be military commanders, that was something Lawrence had to do from an early point also. 
He did. Um, and the four people that he evaluated closely were the sons of King Hussein, the self-proclaimed king of the Hijaz. And he looked at three of the sons and realized that they were either too soft, too venal, or too young, unable to, to carry the load. Or, in the choice of Faisal, he found a guy that had the charisma to be able to unite and lead this disparate group of Bedouin tribes. Let me ask you about the, the, the actual Aqaba mission, because you describe it in the book as, as basically classic special operations intelligence, where it's everything from collecting intelligence on the Turks, you know, tactical intelligence as they move forward, but also evaluating local tribes, figuring out the strengths and weaknesses, figuring out what leadership could be trusted, kind of planning for the future that would come so in handy in the period later on. I mean, that's, again, something that you're going to be doing in special operations is as you're doing a particular mission, you're also trying to figure out the lay of the land and who you can trust and who you can't. Lawrence, as he moved north, was going from an area that he was somewhat familiar with to an area that he was intimately familiar with. And he knew many of the big players to the north. Uh, he didn't know Faisal and his crew to the south very much until he joined them in uh, 1916. But as he moved north, he was getting into an area that he'd been in before. He'd walked, and he knew people. And he took an audacious side trip during the, the Aqaba raid and went as far north as Damascus, which was about 200 miles north of where he was, on his own to go talk to these different leaders and find some of the people that he knew and knew were supportive of, of the rebellion. And essentially he was assessing, assessing them for the future, but he was also at the same time telling them not to do anything now because the Turks were too strong in that area, at least for the moment, and if they moved too soon, it could upset the revolt. And he did a, a very good job of that and then came back and wrote a report for General Allenby that General Allenby, after he found out about Aqaba, accepted immediately. His whole point plan for, for how they were going to win, win the revolt. So Yeah, I want to talk about that in a second, but there's an interesting counterfactual here about you know what would have happened. Because Lawrence almost dies, essentially, in this operation. Yeah. In, by his own hand, in many respects, he shoots his own camel in the head. Yeah, that and, was unfortunate. Yeah, unfortunate. <laughs> at, at full gallop or whatever yeah. camels do. I don't know if yeah. camels gallop or not, but gets himself knocked out right in the middle of a massive like sword and bayonet battle. Yeah. Uh, that would have changed things pretty dramatically. Yeah, I, I think uh, had he been eliminated, uh, probably the British would have never found out about it or would have found about, out about it much later. Um, whether or not the Turks had gone forward to take Aqaba is one thing, but being able to stay there would have been another because without Lawrence to go get or tell the British that here we are and please come and support us, um, that would have never happened. And I think the rest of the, uh, the Hajjaj force... Wingate and Allenby back in Cairo and Khartoum, respectively. Um, actually, it's the other way around, but in any event, they would have concentrated on Medina, and they would have never moved north. Well, you mentioned Allenby a couple times. I think it's really interesting. I mean, Lawrence is a captain, so he's relatively low on the totem pole. And the British are not necessarily known for their high-up leaders being flexible, creative thinkers. Certainly in World War I, right? They certainly come later on. But World War I, the, the kind of very rigid thinking. 
in that way that war was fought. Um, it took a lot of guts and risk on Allenby's part to listen to Lawrence. Even though he, it, the movie does a great job of kind of him showing up just just d- dirt and, and mud and sand coming through the desert. Um, and that had to have been a crazy sight, certainly, in, in the real world. But this is not somebody who's like a colonel coming to a general and said, this is just this lowly captain who's been doing guerrilla war. But Allenby takes the chance of saying, this is the wave of the future. This is how we win this thing. That's true. LMB, LMB took a big risk. I think uh, Lawrence's appearance before him was presaged or pre-told by uh, Clayton, General Clayton, and uh, Ronald Storrs, who is his LMB's uh, advisor, his political advisor. Both of those guys knew Lawrence's character and basically said to LMB, I think you should listen to this guy. And when Lawrence came forward, Allenby already had two of his principals saying, this guy seems to really know what he's doing. He's been out in the field, and um, he's got great ideas. And, oh, by the way, we just took Aqaba, which was one of the first pieces of good news they'd had in a long time. And Allenby said, okay, this guy's got something that a lot of these other people don't. Is this when it really kind of made the shift to a truly combined arms fight? This is where you start saying, I call it light armor, but basically they're technicals. These, you know, these, these essentially armored cars that have machine guns shoved on the top of them. Well, yeah. Uh, the armored cars are one of my favorite parts. And because, probably because who takes a Rolls Royce and put a machine gun on top of it in what essentially looks like a tuna fish can? Um, but they also had um, artillery pieces mounted on the back of uh, trucks, or lorries, as the British would call them. And they were old, antiquated guns, but they could move with them very quickly and uh, put them in places where the Turks didn't expect it. So you've got, you've got artillery, you've got uh, fast-moving armored cars, because the Rolls-Royces, despite the fact that they were built on top of a standard car, with 2,000 pounds of armor, can still do 50 to 60 miles an hour across the desert. And then you've got the Royal Flying Corps, uh, who are able to drop bombs, machine gun things, and you've got this this com- perfect combination of ground assets, fast-moving ground assets that can hit anywhere with surprise. You've got good intelligence, both from your radio communications and from your aerial observation. And it's, it's uh, of course, you've got the Navy behind you who are also securing your ports and delivering all the supplies you need. It's, it's combined war, perfect combined warfare, at least for that time. And then it goes into special operations, hitting behind the lines, surprise speed, violence of action, everything, everything you could possibly want. Right. Yeah. But I mean, the combined arms stuff, it, it almost slips out of the irregular warfare into what we see... 30 years later in the Second World War. I mean, this is kind of an almost embryonic version of what the Germans, what, what's incorrectly called the Blitzkrieg, but, you know, what the Germans would call the Wegenskrieg, the idea of war of movement, or the idea of be fast, be quick, surprise people. And, and that is really what, you know, again, you think of World War I as a stagnant trench warfare where there's no movement. And here's the opposite. Here's where they're moving behind enemy lines at 60 miles an hour, 
if they hit something hard that they don't want to try to fight, they go around it and they try to find a different way around. This, yeah. this is essentially the Germans in World War II in many respects. Yeah, without, and, the, ta- without the tanks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but then the British also use it in World War II as yeah. well because Lawrence, after the war, talks to a couple of interesting people. One of them, uh, by the name of Bagnold, who forms the Long Range Desert Group. Um, which was so poorly shown on American TV as Rap Patrol, I think, in the 1960s or 70s. But um, it, it, it was a harbinger of, of things to come. Uh, and um, I'm not sure how much Lawrence influenced uh, Guderian and others, but I, I'm sure they were well familiar with his exploits. And, and yeah. Well, he didn't invent this himself. I mean, as you point out, Irregular warfare is is not new. No, um, you know whether it's 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 Wellington in Spain and the Peninsula War against against Napoleon, whether it's the Boer War. I mean, the British had just been on the the losing side, or not the losing, but the 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 the, the, the side against during the, when the Boers used irregular warfare against the British. Just you know, not even two decades before World War One. Um, Don't forget Ireland. And when Ireland too, and and yeah. what well, I think. What I perceive is, is Lawrence was able to take. He under he wasn't somebody that just was kind of thrown into the military. He he had read his Clausewitz, he had read his Yomini, he had read his Sun Tzu, and he pulled from them the necessary stuff while ignoring the things that didn't apply in this kind of war fighting. Is that what really makes him? Let's not use the word genius. Is that what really makes him as successful as he is, because he's somebody that understood key points like you know, Clausewitz and politics and things, but at the same time realized that Clausewitz is not talking about guerrilla warfare in Syria when he was writing on war. Well, I, I think it's true in, in every war. Um, you cannot really plan specifically for how things are going to happen, and warfare evolves uh, as you go forward. And this, the Arab Revolt, is a perfect uh, example if not perfect, uh, a good example of, of how war evolves. I mean, they were working first uh, in very short, doing very short raids, and even their methodologies of how they were blowing up the railroad tracks would evolve over time. And then the airplanes come in and increase their intelligence. And Lawrence did not come up with all the ideas. It was Clayton who sent forward the Rolls Royces and said, we think you can use these. And he had other people that were extremely good planners behind him, uh, Colonel Joyce and um, a guy that by the name of Downey, who was a Coldstream Guard uh, officer who was an impeccable planner. And he would come out and often give Lawrence specific ideas on how to organize his attacks, especially when they got larger than just your When it became more conventional. When when it became, yes. When you had to incorporate different aspects. When you had to bring in the cavalry, the Rolls-Royce cars, and the artillery, and the airplanes. It was a guy by the name of Downey who was uh, the the perfect planner for all this, and, and he knew how to do it. And Lawrence recognized that. If you're thinking about counterinsurgency operations, are the Turks the perfect example of what not to do? They seem to have completely missed what was going on and just not understood what was happening to them. I am not sure if they made a conscious decision to not understand (laughs) (laughs) or they they were simply poor uh, planners because they insisted on defending only 
the railway that went from Damascus to Medina. And they never would bother to range out from the railway to look for these Arab guerrillas. And that long linear target, 1,400, 1,200 kilometers long, was, was a perfect target because the Arabs could come in at any point and the, the Turks had, had no capability to try to defend this. The British did the same thing in, in uh, the Boer War, but they figured out how to defend their lines. Um, the Turks never did. Um, so I think the, the, the Ottoman Turk army failed miserably, and so did the Germans because they didn't give them good advice. No. Right, so the big picture... How much does this part of the war matter? So it, it, I think it's. It, it, we talked about the fact that all the focus was on Europe, and the the hundredth anniversary a couple you know a couple months ago. Um, but it, it you'd be hard pressed to say that this was truly a sideshow because of all the resources that had diverted from the German war effort, because the German flank was supposed to be protected certainly from the south by the Ottomans. And when the Russians were knocked out of the war, that could have dramatically changed things if the Ottomans weren't so busy chasing their own tail. Well, there were a, there were a number of sideshows in in World War One. I. I think uh, many of them were very important. I mean, the East African campaign, for example, um, uh, never more than about ten thousand native and German troops managed to keep a quarter million. Uh, British uh, Commonwealth troops occupied in, in what is today Kenya from from 1916 until several days after the armistice. Uh, General Letao von Forbeck did not surrender until he was ordered to by Berlin, and that was after the German army had already surrendered. So they tied up people there. But I think Lawrence's sideshow of a sideshow, or I should say the Hijaj uh, the hedgehog military mission to the Hijaj um, managed to secure Allenby's flank, his right flank, as he drove north east towards Damascus. And that was what allowed Allenby, uh, a great deception plan that was put together by Lawrence and Downey, um, that, that convinced the, the Turks that Allenby was attacking someplace else, and when he made his final push forward, they were not prepared for it. So this sideshow of a sideshow ensured that Allenby had success. And that, that success was just one of many successes that had to happen, I think, to take apart the, the uh, German alliance. The Ottomans uh, surrendered shortly after that. And um, it was the beginning of the end for the, for the um, Germans. So. Was the beginning of the end for a lot of things, and I want to ask you That's about. That's true. <laughs> I want to ask you about legacy. Yeah. Um, both the legacy of Lawrence, the legacy of kind of these operations, and kind of for special operations. You've already kind of hinted at that, but we can kind of bring it together. And then the legacy of uh, the British and the French and everyone else trying to get their heavy-handedness inside this area of the world and the kind of the bitterness from that. Uh, so if you want to kind of start with the idea of Lawrence, the legacy of Lawrence. Well, it's interesting because Lawrence withdrew uh, very much from uh, the public eye after about 1920. Uh, his, his work with uh, the 
Sykes Peak O Treaty and what was eventually decided for the Middle East sort of soured him or seems to have soured him completely on on the political aspects of the Middle East. And he never really returned there. Uh, after 1920, he went off and did his own thing. But what what his type of warfare did do was show the British some of the different things that they could do as they tried to keep control over Iraq or Mesopotamia and, and the region. Um, I, I think the legacy of Lawrence is really on the small scale, on the guerrilla warfare side, on the tactical scale, not on the strategic side. It was the British and the French governments who basically came in to exploit everything that was left behind. Um, the French take Syria, the, the British essentially um, support Saud, who, who gains control of Saudi Arabia, and those were the, the precursors for, for what has happened today. Uh, at the same time, the British and the French um, champion the uh, Jewish homeland, uh, the Balfour Declaration, of course. Um, and that's another aspect that, that is with us today. And I can't say for the life of me what, what the correct solution or the wrong solution is, but I, I, I know that the, World War, the end of World War I is really the beginning of, of most of the problems that we have today. What did the Jordanians think about Lawrence when you were there? Like, what, what did the Arab world think about Lawrence today? Uh, a lot of Arabs will say that Lawrence was only one person out of many that, that helped them in this Arab revolt. Uh, there have been a number of Arab scholars who, who, who denigrate him completely. Um, one one uh, Arab um, nationalist leader from the time period, I think this is the mid to late 1920s, said that he saw the uh, Hijaz rebellion and King Hussein's forces as merely a surrogate of the British. And it, it, I think it shows you just the, the dichotomy of opinion. You know, right. In the West, we say, oh, the Arab revolt... Um, Got the the Arabs their their homelands. Well, the, to say that is really not not correct. Uh, the the British and the French were not altruistic in this. They they did not want the Arabs really to have their homeland. They wanted to be able to control them. Uh, the, the French wanted Syria, as I said before, and and the British wanted the oil in Saudi Arabia. Quite <laughs> well, and there wasn't they hadn't really even discovered to that point the massive amounts of oil that. Saudi well, they knew Arabia. it was there. I yeah. mean, American Standard Oil was yeah. there in 1913, so I mean they were exploring out there, and the British realized that that they needed the oil for for their navy, and once again the, the Royal Navy comes to the fore. You know, this, especially with Winston Churchill, but yeah. Well, let me, let me ask you the final question about your experiences within CIA, within U.S. Army Special Forces. You, you talked a little bit. You hinted at the fact that you, you learned you looked at this at Fort Bragg. How much is Lawrence kind of foundational to to what we do today? He is not the cornerstone, but he's one aspect of it. I, I think uh, people 
regard him as some sort of counterinsurgency expert, or as I've heard that before. I don't see him as a counterinsurgency expert at all. I see him as the other side a guerrilla warfare yeah. um, leader, uh, a guy who knows how to use foreign forces. Uh, there are other people that, that we can look at that... Um, that uh, have equal or, or larger roles in, in what we see today. I mean, uh, we can easily study some of the um, Arab rebel leaders in North Africa or, or elsewhere. Um, there are so many different aspects to look at uh, that uh, I think he's important. I think it's important to remember a lot of the things to say, but I'm not going to say he's a cute person. The book is called Masters of Mayhem, Lawrence of Arabia and the British Military Mission to the Hejaz. I also recommend the, uh, James' earlier book, Special Forces Berlin. As I mentioned earlier, clandestine Cold War operations of the U.S. Army's elite, 1956 to 1990. Uh, and you can also go back and listen to that podcast if you want to know a little bit more about that. So, James, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution to help support future educational programming. Please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Loud link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.